when we do that with experienced runners, they tend to be within um, about three or five percent of the gait characteristic uh, that is required for that mathematical optimal, uh, whereas untrained runners are about eight percent away. That triathlon show two hundred forty-one. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Dr. Issy Moore. Uh, Issy is a researcher at Cardiff Metropolitan University. She specializes in running biomechanics, economy, and injuries. And in this interview, we discuss her research in these areas and some other ones as well, including, for example, training load, quantification, and the implications and the practical applications of her findings for triathletes and runners. But before we get into the interview, big thanks to our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration. Precision Hydration make electrolyte products that you can match to your individual sodium losses. Everybody has uh, the different sodium concentration in their sweat, plus when you add to that the fact that uh, we have different sweat rates, then the inter-individual difference between how much sodium uh, two different athletes lose can be pretty dramatic. And that is why Precision Hydration has created a free online sweat test that you can take on their website. It takes just a few minutes and you will answer uh, 10 questions uh, qualitatively and uh, that will give you a ballpark estimate for how much sodium you lose and then you can use that information to match your sodium intake and this is especially important in longer and hotter races and events to how much sodium you will lose during that event. So check them out on precisionhydration.com, take that free online sweat test and get 15% off your order with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And big thanks to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka are the world-leading manufacturers of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear, including prescription glasses and sunglasses. And I've talked about the prescription glasses and sunglasses uh, lineup of uh, Roka several times before. Personally, I use the Rory prescription glasses and really love them. They're super high quality, as uh, all of Roka's products are. But uh, I think that that's still something that I want to uh, remind listeners of, that uh, Roka do put as much uh, emphasis into their development of prescription glasses and sunglasses as they do their wetsuits and trisuits and so on. So definitely, if you are somebody who uses prescription glasses and sunglasses, the next time you want a new pair, I would uh, check out Roka go and uh, check out their different options you can even do things like getting your vision test online so uh, it makes it super easy to to just order online you have customization options and so on and so forth so plenty of uh, benefits of using roca's prescription glasses you can even get 20 percent off your order with a promo code that you'll get on roca.com forward slash tts now without any further ado here's my interview with dr izzy moore Welcome to that triathlon show, Izzy. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. And uh, let's just start off with uh, you introducing yourself and your background a bit more for the listeners who may not know who you are. 
Yes, uh, so I'm Dr. Izzy Moore. I'm at Cardiff Metropolitan University now. Um, I'm a reader in human movement and sport medicine. And I originally undertook a PhD at the University of Exeter with Professor Andrew Jones and Dr. Sean Dixon. Uh, so a biomechanist and physiologist. So I sat in between the two disciplines uh, trying to understand the mechanical elements that might contribute to an individual's running economy and so we, we I've, I've undertaken some research in in that for a number of years and more recently i've also transitioned to trying to understand how we can go about changing individuals running gait uh, and also considering the injury side of things whilst also balancing that with the need to maintain an element of, of performance or certainly not be detrimental to to someone's running economy yeah that's uh, that's a perfect overview and uh, that's sorry there's my phone going off i'm going to <laughs> close that um so let's get into that the biomechanics side of things and perhaps we can start with uh, the performance aspects of it what have you been looking into in your research and uh, what have the findings been Yes, so I undertook a, a series of studies, um, mainly in female winners, which is actually uh, not as common as we, we hope it should be. And uh, we were able to look at how individuals might naturally uh, change and adapt their running mechanics over a period of, of training where we're trying to essentially get them into running and improve, uh, improve their fitness and therefore improve their running economy uh, and that really kick-started my PhD that work and we were able to see that, that females did naturally change their running mechanics so they received no real coaching or, or technique advice in regards to their running gait uh, and that was related to their change in running economy so we were able to link several kinematics to uh, that change in running economy. Uh, then I've gone also on to consider things like muscular coactivation and uh, the role that mus muscle activity may play in terms of your metabolic costs. Um, and that all kind of led me towards then considering how your muscle activity, your running gait, interacts with the footwear that you might select and the potential performance implication of that through measuring running economy. So in that study, we were able to show that barefoot running did appear to offer uh, an advantage over running in conventional trainers. So so not these energy return trainers that we have now. This this research was done before, before that uh, wave of footwear technology came in. So your typical kind of uh, cushioned trainers. Um, if you run barefoot, there are a number of mechanical changes that happen, and that teamed up with the uh, less mass that you're carrying on your foot appear to be beneficial for your running economy. So you're consuming less oxygen at a given speed um, when in the when running barefoot uh, than compared to running in the shod condition, um, and we've now gone on to looking at um, things such as when we try and change how you run, how does that influence your mechanical efficiency? So it's a slightly different take on where we're going with things and has implications potentially for, for how people coach as well as how people conduct injury rehabilitation. 
uh, and that's a really exciting area that uh, hasn't really been tapped into because a lot of people focus on running economy rather than the efficiency um, and it's probably important to say that so running economy is different to efficiency even though they often get used interchangeably uh, running economy being your sub-maximal oxygen that you can consume at a given speed whereas efficiency is a, essentially how much work can you do as you're consuming that oxygen so there needs a measure of work to be able to calculate efficiency so it, it is a little bit more complex to do that calculation mm. and why have you uh, now moved into working with the efficiency what, what is the practical implication because uh, at the offset they sound like they could be almost like the inverse of each other but they're slightly different aren't they uh, yes so like i say they're, they're slightly different and a lot of people tend to say if you improve your economy your efficiency must also be improved um, but as you say there's there's a relationship going on there you could actually improve your economy so you're consuming less oxygen but if um, the amount of work you're doing also changes then actually your efficiency might not change at all and so this notion of actually having an efficient runner uh, may different from having an economical runner um, and it's just about trying to tease out that kind of relationship and talk about it a bit more because I think we often just get so focused on the economy side of things uh, we forget that there's also an amount of work that needs to be done so we can then start to think about well there is also a lot of work that we do that is almost wasted energy so a lot of the rotational motion that we might have in our running gait that doesn't necessarily contribute to our forward momentum uh, so this is kind of a starting step maybe towards considering some more female specific considerations um, such as the, the breast biomechanics and breast motion um, because females we appear to have a lot more rotation going on in their upper body so that's kind of somewhere where we're interested in moving towards is trying to understand whether there are differences in terms of efficiencies based on the sex of a runner as well. Mm, yeah, interesting. So so if we go and maybe perhaps discuss the highlights of each of those studies that you mentioned there. So starting with uh, the novice runners that you that were basically not getting any coaching per se in terms of their mechanics, but just getting into running and improving their economy and changing their mechanics as a natural consequence of just running uh, what was the duration of that study and what was the magnitude of changes that you saw so that study was a 10-week intervention kind of like a couch to 5k almost so it was taking untrained female runners and getting them to a state where they can run for 30 minutes continuously at the end of that 10 weeks and specifically we, we looked at a lot of lower limb kinematics and some kinetics and we were able to see that um, the, the push-off phase is really important so as the runners became more economical they actually generated less uh, knee and ankle uh, extension so the knee is now in slightly more flex position as is the foot um, which intuitively does make a bit of sense because we want to push forwards um, and these runners were also able to increase the peak push-off force that they were generating and also have stiffer 
uh, muscular tendon units of the calf. So when we measured the calf stiffness, we saw that they actually got stiffer after 10 weeks of running and teamed up with the kinematic and kinetic changes we're seeing we're, we're thinking that they're essentially allowing their, their muscles to operate at a more favorable position uh, in terms of the force length relationship. Uh, and that might then allow them to have um, a greater release of elastic energy that is stored during the breaking and then the release during propulsion. A lot of that, as I say, so we, we've got some great data on it, but still um, that notion of storage and release of energy isn't something we're able to quantify. But uh, we see quite consistently in the literature that economical runners display this uh, leg flexion and less plant flexion at the ankle at push-off. So rather than trying to aim for full extension through those limbs, we actually want to maintain a slight flexion to enable us to push forwards. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. Do, do you have, like when you say that you, you want to maintain a, a bit of flexion in the foot and the knee, is there any particular runner that comes to mind in terms of if the listener wants to go on YouTube and look up what does a flexed running style at the foot and the, uh, and the knee look like that, that you can point to? Well, I wish I would be able to, but um, I don't. I don't have one that that springs to mind. Um, but it does raise a really uh, a good point: is that we don't tend to actually look at the, the thigh extension, or uh, well, most people also look at the hip. Um, we don't actually tend to quantify that. And um, in a lot of the the really strong uh, endurance runners. Uh, we we often see quite a lot of hip extension, so it could be that it's more limited around the knee and ankle. Um, but it's the yeah, no, sorry, I don't have a, a specific runner that they could potentially go and look at um, off the top of my head. Okay, uh, what about the the change in economy that you saw over the course of those ten weeks? What was the magnitude of it? Uh, so that was sorry, that was an eight percent change in economy, which is. It's probably towards the, the large end of what you can expect. Uh, in fact, it, most interventions tend to probably be around maybe the, the 4 or 5% change in running economy. Uh, we put our relatively large change down to the fact that these are very much untrained, or some of them fairly sedentary individuals to begin with. So the lower your fitness level at the beginning, the greater uh, level of change that you could pay, potentially achieve. Whereas if we take train runners, I wouldn't expect to see anywhere near that kind of change in running economy. With trained runners, um, you're, you're almost erring towards the side of whether you're, you can measure the change appropriately because it might be within the kind of measurement error of your system because the better their metabolic and cardiovascular system is the smaller the room for improvement. So if we take some really untrained runners, we can expect to be able to have a much larger difference uh, in still a relatively short training time. I think um, uh, my old supervisor, I think he's been on one of your podcasts before, Professor Andrew Jones. He yep. He did note relatively large changes in Paula Radcliffe, but that was a span of, of I think, was it 10, 10 years or, or maybe even more. So, and that was a kind of progressive 
decrease rather than a kind of acute decrease in a short training span. So you you could see them over a long period of time, but uh, there probably won't be many studies that support that because they just won't be published or they won't won't have the funding to run them for such a long time. Yeah. Uh, so a couple of follow-up questions on that. First, um, before I, I forget this point, how does an 8%, for example, improvement in economy translate to improvement in performance or speed? What sort of rough guidelines can we say about that? That's uh, always the, the question, the, the kind of applied implication that uh, we don't often tend to measure in a lot of these studies is is the performance effect from a 5k, 10k type run. Uh, it depends actually based on your speed. So if you run slower, it actually almost is a is a one to one type ratio. So a one percent improvement in your economy could translate to a one percent improvement in your performance. Um, but as you speed up it kind of goes to about a two-thirds so if I've got a one percent improvement I can expect about six a 0.67 percent improvement in my performance time so as you actually are running at higher velocities there it there is a slightly different relationship that you see between performance and economy yeah yeah that's I remember I interviewed uh, the the lead offer of uh, the original paper behind the Nike 4% shoes. And yeah. he said that for somebody like Eliud Kipchoge, the 4% economy improvement might translate to between 2 and 3% speed yes. improvement. Yeah. yeah. Exactly uh, and, and the other follow-up point on, on your, what you said there, uh, bringing Paula Radcliffe and that long-term uh, study in or case study in how her economy changed. How true would you say that, the state, statement that experienced runners or triathletes have already sort of self-optimized their biomechanics and potentially their economy is? I think there seems to be several studies that say exactly the same thing, which is that experienced train runners are very close to producing a running gait that minimizes the metabolic cost to the mathematical optimal so so we do this kind of testing by getting them to run and then systematically manipulating that running style for example higher cadences and lower cadences and then we're able to to plot what that looks like and identify this is your mathematical minimum amount of oxygen that you could potentially consume and when we do that with experienced runners they tend to be within um, about three or five percent of the gait characteristic uh, that is required for that mathematical optimal Uh, whereas untrained runners are about eight percent away so the untrained runners have Again, going back to my, my kind of earlier comment about the kind of lower baseline fitness, greater room for improvement, the untrained runners who haven't acquired as much exposure to training um, seem to be further away from the mathematical optimal that they could achieve. Uh, it is important to say, actually, that 
the majority of these studies uh, are all actually on only male winners. So we recently did a study where we looked at ground contact time and how optimised ground contact time and leg stiffness were. Um, we were only able to collect one female that kind of fit the criteria, but she did display the exact same kind of optimization uh, of a trained runner. So hopefully we can actually trans translate that knowledge into our female athletes as well. So it, I think there are some runners that might, again, it's always about individual variation. So even in a trained cohort, there'll be some runners that are probably almost bang on their optimal and there'll be some that are at the further end of three, four, five percent. So individually assessing those athletes is really important. And then you might be able to just help expedite that kind of fine tuning process of their running mechanics to help achieve that mathematical optimal. Mm. So, um, well, let's go back to the, the studies that you listed there at the beginning. Remind me, what was the second one? Was it the footwear or... Um... The second one we did was uh, we looked at co-activation. So um, we got females into the lab and got them running at different speeds. And just simply, what is the co-activation of the, so the thigh, so the quads and the hamstrings? Uh, and does that relate to the their running economy? And what we were able to show with that was, again, physiologically, it, this, these results make sense in that the more co-activation you have, so the more active uh, those muscles are, the higher your metabolic cost. Uh, however, in the literature, there's actually quite conflicting level of data where some have shown the complete opposite. So actually high co-activation um, is good for economy. Uh, we're not entirely sure why the differences are found so i think we, we need a few more studies to really kind of drill down on co-activation and probably also not just look at co-activation in isolation but also consider things like uh the stiffness and kinematics as they're running because we only measured co-activation in that study we didn't do a, a full gait analysis mm. All right. So, uh, yeah, uh, slightly inconclusive then when you take into account the uh, the other uh, research that has been done in the area. So perhaps we just uh, jump right ahead to to the next one. And that was the, the footwear, the barefoot running. And yep. uh, yeah, if you can quickly cover that as well. Yep. So I was really fortunate with that study that we were able to link up uh, and get some free footwear which is always nice so we looked at barefoot minimalist running and as I say these traditional shoes so they were just typical kind of cushioned um, neutral trainers and what we were able to see is that when people were running barefoot uh, and I should say we familiarised them to barefoot running as well in, a, in an earlier session. Um, the barefoot condition offered an advantage to their running economy, um, which was greater than if they were wearing the minimalist shoes or if they were wearing the cushioned shoes. So we saw some kinematics that could contribute to this. So when they run barefoot, we see again this uh, less plant flexion at the ankle. So from from my PhD point of view, it was a nice link to have where 
we'd earlier found this change in running at the ankle was potentially linked to improvements in metabolic cost in beginner runners. And we're now seeing that when people essentially took their shoes off, they also had a similar characteristic, so less plant flexion occurring. And we also found that they had uh, lower vertical oscillation. So essentially how much they're bouncing up and down uh, decreased when they're in the barefoot condition. So it suggests that during that ground contact phase, the limb was a little bit stiffer and the centre of mass wasn't displaced uh, or, or it wasn't moved downwards as much. So the centre of mass is now doing less work against gravity. So if it's potentially doing less work, um, this may lead to having a lower metabolic cost uh, and therefore an improved running economy. And uh, what is the practical takeaway there? Like, that, do you think that that is something that, well, or, let, or actually, let me put it this way. So now you mentioned already, now we have these energy returning uh, insoles or mm-hmm. shoes like the Nikes, uh, different models. Uh, is there, like, so is, is this a bit dated already because that would actually be even more economical? Or is there still a potential use case for barefoot running in terms of perhaps just doing sessions to specifically target improved economy by doing some certain sessions barefoot? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think one of the the key elements to this argument around to be barefoot or to to wear energy returning shoes or, or footwear at all is the concept of actually how much those those shoes weigh so there was a really great review by fuller um, and his co-authors it was a review paper trying to pull together all of the different studies that have looked at barefoot running have looked at shod running and the threshold seems to be about 220 grams per shoe uh, off If you increase the weight of the shoe above 220, you can see that your metabolic cost will be have will increase. So a lightweight shoe uh, actually appears when we look across the studies to produce similar uh, metabolic benefits as being barefoot. Um, So I think some of the energy return shoes have probably taken this into account they are fairly light shoes as well so they they almost have double uh bang for their buck there so they're they're lightweight and they have a foam that helps return energy to the foot that may all contribute to for these shoes in particular the four percent improvement we're seeing um but as you say that in terms of benefits to training of potentially being barefoot uh, from a performance perspective it could for example uh, there are several studies now that show that if you kind of go on this transition program and increase your exposure to barefoot or minimalist footwear you uh, strengthen the muscles in your feet um, and that may help for certain things like your your balance and certain gait variables. But there isn't too much to say that if you add it into your training program that you can expect some performance benefits 
I think that there is potentially an argument to be made that actually just increasing the variability of the load to the muscular system might actually be useful from an injury perspective. Um, again, we don't know that for sure, but we know that if you use more than two pairs of footwear when you during your running training, so over a 10-week block, you're kind of rotating through at least two pairs of shoes, you have a lower injury risk than if you just wear one pair of shoes, suggesting that allowing your body to be exposed to different levels of loading and how you likely adapt your running gait to suit each shoe, that variability to the musculoskeletal system is a useful protective response for the body. So it has to, uh, from a tissue perspective, the tissue gets loaded differently each time you maybe change your shoes or take your shoes off, each time you run on a different terrain, whether you run incline or decline. Uh, and that tissue response is probably beneficial. Is it beneficial performance? I don't think uh, there's any data to say that, but it could be from a, an injury perspective. All right. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's good. Uh, good advice. And uh, how big is the or how how great a decrease in injury risk can you see if you wrote it through more than two pairs of shoes during that training block? Um, from recollection of that paper, I think it was between um, maybe a 10 to 20%. Uh, that's what they saw when they had one cohort compared to another. Mm. Again, though, it might not work for everyone, but I think actually speaking to, to a lot of runners, I know that actually <laughs> some runners do tend to have a, a lot of pair of shoes anyway. So it could be that just having that, uh, adaptability is is a good way forward yeah yeah uh, all right and then the fourth paper that you mentioned was that the one with more sort of actively changing biomechanics and uh, investigating changes of that yeah so recently uh, what well, kind of after i finished my phd and since being in, in cardiff we've been looking at how how we can verbally instruct runners to change their running gait. I've been really fortunate to work with a great physio, um, Tom Goom, who's an excellent running physio, and Dr. Kelly Ashford, who's uh, an expert in motor learning. And what we're seeing is, again, I, a lot of this data I don't think is, <laughs> I probably shouldn't say about my own work, but rocket science. We see that if you want to change someone's gait in a very specific way, you should use what we call internal focus of attention verbal instruction. So that means essentially tell them what you want them to change. So an internal focus is about focusing on the movement of your body. Uh, what you'll see a lot in the literature, though, is that people should use an external focus of attention. So this is when you look at or consider the, the effect of that movement in terms of maybe the environment and it and the outcome of that movement so there's a lot of uh, scientific literature out there on mainly discrete movements things like golf putting basketball free throws which show if i give you an external focus of attention instruction you might be more accurate with your golf putting you might be more accurate with your basketball free throwing 
But when we're very interested in changing running gait, we need to probably switch to using internal focus of attention cues rather than external focus of attention cues. Right. So, so the purpose of this paper was basically to investigate which uh, which focus and which types of cues are the most effective in uh, in actually making a, a change. And or did you also compare like different changing from one particular gate to another and the impact that that had, or was more the learning process that you tried to validate? Uh, we did me- so we measured running economy in that study and. Um, we found very little difference actually in which cues we gave and essentially increases in metabolic costs or worsening of running economy. We You almost expect that with relatively large changes to gait in an acute setting, running economy will get worse because you're making the runner do things uh that they're not used to doing. They're used to running this very familiar habitual pattern and all of a sudden we're coming along and disrupting that. But we found that if you use uh, an internal cue, you can change the running style in the way that you want and it doesn't produce a large change in metabolic cost or, or running economy. Uh, interestingly as well when we look at just the perceptual effort so when we use things like rpe to gauge how hard people actually think they are now working uh, it doesn't matter what verbal instruction you give them so that kind of is a bit of a disconnect between the metabolic cost and the rpe which we wouldn't necessarily expect it just suggests that if you try and change how someone runs they will perceive it as as hard regardless of how you instruct them to do it uh, and potentially regardless of what the actual metabolic effect is. Mm, Right. And so that brings me to, to a kind of important question here. What are the potential scenarios where you would actually say that it makes sense to actively try to change your biomechanics if, if any? if you can generally expect an acute impairment of economy or increase of the metabolic cost of running? It's a good... Yeah, that's... So we... um, I would say I would do an individual assessment of a runner and if they are really far away from their mathematical optimal of... We can do it for stride length uh, and therefore cadence all ground contact time and length stiffness so if they're really far away from those components doing a biomechanical intervention say there's studies that have done biomechanical interventions for as little as 15 days we could see an improvement in their metabolic cost if you provide them with that really prescriptive training to hone them towards uh, their mathematical optimal and that's uh you know 15 days essentially about uh, three weeks so it's half the time that you'd expect physiological ad- adaptations to happen so it really kind of highlights that there are potential mechanical gains we can make however if it's a really trained runner uh, and they're very close to their optimal potentially there isn't an awful lot that you would want to do to their running gait you could change we know that you can change stride length 
you can uh, decrease it by about 3% and not expect a huge metabolic change to happen. So we've seen that. We saw that in the footwear study that I talked about earlier. We've also seen that just by looking through previous literature, that when you change stride length by less than 3%, which may all be maybe what that runner needs to refine their running gait, when you do that, there isn't a large, they actually might get more towards their optimal and potentially not a large detrimental impact on their economy. Uh, but for, from my perspective now, the more I'm kind of getting involved and with the performance as well as injury rehabilitation side of things, it's in the rehabilitation where you might go, okay, performance is important, but actually just trying to get this runner or triathlete back running, running in a way that reduces their pain, uh, allows them to continue, that's important. And there is, for some injuries, gait retraining is a really viable option that can help them do that. So that's when I would definitely look to consider using gait retraining as a vehicle to help reduce those symptoms and allow them to continue their, their training uh, if, particularly if they're, you know, targeting a race that they want to get to. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And when you mentioned they're a highly trained runner that may not have a lot to gain by doing any changes in biomechanics, uh, but then we had the discussion about Paula Radcliffe earlier where she actually did see significant improvement, albeit over a very long time period. Uh, does that come down to simply, that's something that I've seen in, in some reviews on running economy, just putting in the miles year after year, basically, mm. and that's how you improve, not not by doing any particular intervention. Yeah, I think that's just a, a, a yes. I think that's exactly true. You you can't you can't completely try and short circuit or get away from needing to just put the miles in uh, to to do the volume uh, to get those physiological adaptations the mechanics i think is probably more about just that kind of fine tuning and product in the trained runners um uh, but if they have a poor physiological basis to begin with we can help improve it with mechanics but they will always hit a wall and you need the improvements in the cardiovascular system to continue those improvements as is the case you know with with the data from paula radcliffe the mechanics will always hit a wall and as will the cardiovascular and you basically want them to hit those walls so they're at the maximal that they can offer to the runner but uh, for most people just uh, putting in the miles um, is probably the first place i would start doing it and as you put in the miles, if you're untrained, your mechanics will likely change over time in a way that is beneficial for your economy. Yeah. Uh, that being said, one, one thing that I want to ask about is uh, there are a lot of uh, labs, service providers, uh, gate analysts that offer gate analysis services now. And uh, what's your general take on on that? Like, if somebody is interested in getting a gate analysis, where should they turn to, or what should the process be for making sure that they go to 
some place that is actually reputable and know what they're doing because just from my my assumption is that there are a lot of these that actually might do be either neutral at best or maybe even have a negative effect but i may be wrong here so i need to hear what you think <laughs> yeah i guess it's it depends on what people want from gate analysis so Data analysis can give you lots of metrics, lots of numbers. And for some runners, that's really useful. They, they like the numbers. They, they want to know their foot strike pattern. They want to know the cadence, um, the contact time, and other angular data. Uh, but in terms of going to get a gate analysis and hoping that that will offer substantial benefits from a performance perspective um personally it's not something i would recommend going to do i don't think that aligns with what we know from an evidence base uh i could look at every runner and you know you, you as people often do I, I i expect in the park you look at runners and you think oh or oh, they seem to be rotating a lot they seem to be doing this um but Usually my my opinion on that is unless I've done this kind of individual assessment for economy uh, and they're injured, I probably wouldn't play around too much with their running technique, um, particularly if you're expecting it to be a quick fix. Um, um, I'm not I'm not saying all runners that go to a gate analysis do, but but often it's almost like wanting a new pair of trainers. So oh, if I put new pairs of trainers on, that might reduce my injury risk. If I get a gait analysis, they'll tell me what I need to do. But changing your gait is, is really hard. Um, it needs to be kind of progressively done. And, you, for example, if you were running, um, you know, 30, 40 kilometres uh, a week, you had a gait analysis, tried a new gait and tried to match that in the following week, you'd likely end up, you know, doing yourself a bit of damage because you're suddenly loading your body in a very different way, but still maintaining the high uh, kilometres that you were doing before. So uh, I think if people just want to understand the data that, that their running gait gives them, then it's, it's informative from that perspective, but it probably doesn't give the, the performance outcomes that I think uh, a lot of people think that it might do. Uh, if I was going to get a gait analysis, then I mean, I'm slightly biased, but university kind of researchers that uh, experts in gait is probably where I would start and sometimes you can almost get it for free if you take part in a study and you can get some information in return so that could be a good way of doing it uh, but I know there are other places that, that you can obviously go and pay and they will give you some data and some recommendations as well yeah um, I, I would I've never had one I've done myself but from my perspective as well I would probably turn to university just for uh just minimizing the risk of being overcoached because I think that's yeah. sort of as a coach myself, what well, what I fear if an athlete goes to a gate analysis lab might be that they get like just overcoaching and try getting too many corrective cues. And I would rather go to university and maybe say, well, 
you don't really need to change anything and they would be perfectly fine rather than have somebody just because you pay them something say <laughs> you need to change this this and that and then it might be a potential negative so yeah that, and that's, that's yeah i completely agree and that's one of the reasons why i don't i don't do a huge amount of it because i kind of think if someone's going to give you a load of money you almost have to give them something um whereas a lot of the time i've done gait analysis for friends and i've kind of gone oh, i would just kind of keep doing what you're doing um <laughs> which probably isn't a very good uh, business model um yeah it, it, the perceived value isn't very high but <laughs> <laughs> yeah and yeah. Uh, it's often been when i've done it through so i've done it uh, i used to work with the triathlete um the cardiff triathlete and their their coach dr andy lane he's a great friend of mine as well and, and we worked really well together so i would do the analysis and then sit down with him and, and run through it and it would it would be a i guess a multidisciplinary or a team approach to what that means and what kind of cues and interventions that he could work into their training program uh rather than me kind of just going right here is here's the data this is what it means and what you should do i think it needs to be the, the biomechanist and, and the coach working together uh, and to get the best outcome for the the athlete. Mm. And and on a similar note, uh, these days with the, the devices that we use, the, the GPS watches and even the, the running power meters or foot pods, we can get a lot of data, including things like vertical oscillation, um, uh, even things like leg spring stiffness from uh, the stride power meter and just tons of data and metrics uh, regarding our running biomechanics. What's your opinion on those uh, in terms of perhaps pure accuracy, if you have any information on that? But besides that, is this actually actionable data that can be useful or is it just data that uh, is kind of nice to have but isn't necessarily very easy to take action on? Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of um, wearable devices aren't validated. Uh, there was a paper not that long ago, and it did all kinds of wearables, so so not just GPS running-based ones. It, it looked a, a lot more than that, but in essence came to the conclusion that only about 10% of wearable devices on the market are valid, uh, and by that we mean a independent researcher has gone into the lab and calculated the variables that they're also calculating but have done it through force plates or motion analysis for example so there is a, an issue there in the, the accuracy and the precision of these um, wearables I guess on the flip side you could argue that as long as they're consistent in terms of what they're reporting if for example you were trying to change your cadence and uh, you measured it with the same device and that device was consistent in its measurement but maybe always out by five or ten or ten steps if you in change your cadence uh, you the change you see would still be a, a real change it just may not be the the precise change that you expect that you get from it. So 
that, that's the difference really in terms of the accuracy is, and the reliability of a device. Uh, unfortunately, there is, to my knowledge, you can just make a wearable device and put it out to the market and you don't have to have the, the scientific backing to say that this this wearable device is does what it says it does. And so I do think we fall into the danger of having data for data's sake. Uh, we, we can measure so much now. Uh, yeah, started with nice and simple heart rate and then GPS, and now we can get loads of cadence, uh, ground contact time, I think like impact. Some of these come up with maybe a running injury metric as well. Um, if I was going to use a device, I'd probably focus on the, the kind of staples of, of heart rate, GPS and, and cadence. Cadence is actually one of the more easier aspects to quantify. Uh, so I'd probably be more confident in the data I was getting from that. But a lot of the metrics, I, I don't. I don't necessarily know what I would do with them. <laughs> so uh, just because we can calculate something doesn't mean that we should, I think, is, yeah. is the issue. It's funny you should say that. I, I just recorded an episode a couple of weeks ago where I had got this specific question from a listener and uh, I said the exact same thing, that of the besides the obvious, the pace and uh, the heart rate, yeah. the cadence is the one that, that I think is actually useful and actionable, but a lot of the others or all the others, I don't think provide actionable data. Like an example would be ground contact time. Yes, we can differentiate between faster and slower runners with ground contact time in, in, in many situations, but that doesn't mean that just because you know your ground contact time, you can't just think, okay, I'm going to go out and and decrease my ground contact time it's just sort of it goes through the same natural process of improving your general running it's that's it's not the sort of one fixed variable that uh, that you should focus on or you don't know that that's the one fixed variable that you should focus on probably so so it's easy to sort of lose sight of the forest for the for the trees i think with with most of those running dynamic metrics yeah and like you say you change one thing uh, and with running gait, that means you'll change loads of other things. So when you change cadence, you're likely to change your contact time as a result. If you're trying to, I know some some report maybe give you uh, an idea about your foot strike pattern. Um, I'd probably question the actual accuracy of them, but also the actual need to do that. But from a from a performance perspective, there's no real need to change your foot strike. It's it's not more economical to be forefoot or midfoot or rear foot. Uh, there's quite a few studies that show that. In actual fact, again, it's it's detrimental to your running economy if you switch from a rear foot to a forefoot acutely. So the, the, that kind of metric doesn't doesn't really help you um, and actually I think most people can feel if you know you're a rear foot striker you know I when I go running I I have I suffer I've had uh, I've ruptured my anterior cruciate ligament in both left and right knee so occasionally I switch up my gait to offload my knee uh, the, and the loading that's going through it so I can switch up quite easily now to being more on my toes and, and being a four foot runner and I think runners can 
get a feel for that without necessarily needing um, some metric telling them and telling them whether they've hit a target or not with it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And let's discuss the work on on injury that you've done, uh, injury risk and injury prevention a, a little bit more. What, what what are the things? Some of the things we've already mentioned a bit, perhaps, but uh, but can you paint us a picture in broad strokes here of what what you've done in that field? Uh, so with injury, we we are really looking at how can we improve how we gait retrain runners. So there's um, some really nice. Uh, evidence now a lot of it from uh, America so uh, Irene Davis um, which really they have done a lot of work in patellofemoral pain there's also some evidence in ITB in chronic exertional compartment syndrome which shows that we can change someone's running and that can help decrease their symptoms their pain that they're having uh, now we apply a mechanical understanding to that. So we we go in thinking their mechanics have contributed to this injury. And so if we change their mechanics and load the body differently, we would expect to see a reduction in pain. And there's, there's quite a number of studies now that show that we do see this and that is a, a reasonable expectation to have. And the research I've been doing is is actually looking at how we go about implementing gately training and doing it. So like I say, we've been working a lot with verbal instructions and being really precise with your, your language and trying to apply the, the motor learning literature in our understanding of improving gait rehabilitation. So like I, I mentioned before, those internal cues they're the most effective for changing gait. And when we look through the literature, almost everyone uses internal verbal cue, internal focus of attention verbal cues to change gait. Sometimes they're used by a feedback, but always it's supported by these verbal instructions, uh, which is actually really useful from physio or coaching perspective. They don't necessarily need all, the, all these gimmicks, uh, lots of technology or fancy labs your verbal instructions sometimes are as important if not more important to get the job done to alter how someone runs yeah can can you give some specific examples on the internal verbal cues that you might use in gait retraining yeah so um if for example you did you know increase cadence um you, you can use a metronome but we do just or you could simply just say you know, quicken your foot, footsteps and that, that will do the job for your cadence. We have uh, in the lab got people running to a metronome and try to increase their ground contact time by, again, just saying um, reduce the time you spend in contact with the ground or increase the contact you spend in the ground whilst running to the uh, rhythm of the metronome. We've also looked at just trying to create more of a midfoot strike in runners. Uh, so we've used try, try and run with a flat foot or land with a flat foot. There have also been examples where, from an injury perspective, more so than a performance perspective, there's a lot of focus on so what the pelvis and hip are doing. 
and some injuries uh, when we look at people with patellofemoral pain or tibial bound syndrome they have uh, quite a lot of hip adduction and almost a kind of crossover running style so internal cues in that respect would be about trying to increase um, the hip uh, or reduce the hip adduction and the potential chance of crossover gait by saying point your knees forwards towards the wall because we normally do it on a treadmill but keep your knees pointing forwards so often the cues are, are really simple and I would actually outside of the lab it's probably an element of working with an athlete to find out their understanding of that cue their cue interpretation and it may be almost a little bit of trial and error to find the one that works for each athlete um, but make sure you're just really clear and specific and probably keeping it quite short and sweet so you don't you don't, you don't want a whole monologue of instructions the hip is the hip adduction ones and just a nice one keep your knee, keep your knees pointing to the wall yeah. uh, and when you and when you do that the, you, you, you see that reduction you can also there have been ones where it's just contract contract your gluteal muscles and, and that helps counteract the contralateral pelvic drop that you sometimes see in runners uh, so again really short snappy sentences uh, that can be adapted i think based based on whether the cue is giving you the desired result we can't do that in the lab but if I was doing it with an athlete, I would kind of tweak it depending on whether they got what they gave me the desired change I wanted. Mm. And another thing that I saw on your website that you have worked on is uh, how training load uh, impacts the risk of injury. And this, if I understand correctly, is something that you're currently investigating, so it's not yet uh, published. But do you have any information to share on that topic? Um, it, we started started doing it, uh, we had kind of two aims. So one was just a way of trying to just quantify whether someone had a training day using physical activity monitors, which we were able to, to do with a relative degree of accuracy. And then the next phase that we were uh, going towards was looking at uh, the training load in relation to non-time loss injuries so most research often uses just time loss injuries which is usually i've gone to a medical practitioner i'm injured and for several days i can't run with non-time loss injuries this is actually what we see a lot of runners or triathletes have is, is that nagging pain that they kind of persist with running through uh, they may manage their running training accordingly but they still kind of keep going. So we look to track their, their kind of pain that they've experienced and any modifications. Uh, we haven't actually managed to look directly at that data because we err on the side of there's a lot of, there are a lot of issues with workload calculations. Um, there are a lot of people arguing at the moment that trying to quantify workload in terms of acute chronic workload uh, is full of mathematical issues so we're not too sure what approach we need to take from a workload perspective yet unfortunately so i don't have any, any results 
Yeah, that's uh, that's perfectly fine. I'm really interested in hearing those issues with the uh, the training load, the, the the calculations of the training load. Can you talk about that a bit more? Yep. So when you do acute chronic workload, uh, most people go, "I'm going to take the past week as the acute, and the past four weeks as the chronic," and that induces essentially a bit of mathematical coupling because you're using the same bit of data in both elements so that one week acute also is part of the four week data and so when you find potential relationships going on it's almost not that surprising because of that consistency of the data in it there's also the issue that uh why one week, why not two weeks, why four weeks, why not six weeks? So that kind of, that that understanding of what cutoff makes sense is probably sport specific. But what we see in the research literature is uh, people um, people often use probably what suits them depending on the outcome they get. So we, we can play around with data a lot and every now and again find a significant value and then we can try and justify why we've come up with that. And so with workload, there's so many things that you can do in the calculation to try and find a difference that that doesn't necessarily mean it's meaningful. It's just when you run so many different tests, you're likely to come up with a significant finding at some point. Uh, and some of the other issues are leveled around this notion of like a sweet spot, which is more of a theoretical concept. But people have kind of taken it quite literally that you want uh, the sweet spot in the ratio of you know, a 1.2 ratio, I think it might be. And people then kind of report that as evidence when, in fact, there is very little evidence of that suggests that there is a sweet spot. Um, I think workload is a key variable for injury. It's just we don't have the best way of using it in our statistical analysis at the moment. And probably coaches are, are more in tune with what they need to do for their athlete than worrying too much about the acute chronic ratio. Yeah, and the acute chronic ratio, that's still, uh, this, for all its flaws, it's a step ahead of what um, a lot of triathletes at least, and I think probably a lot of runners as well, they're using training peak software, which comes with the performance management chart and everything. But that mm -hmm. actually doesn't measure the acute chronic ratio, but the difference, which uh, to my knowledge hasn't been uh, validated in a single study whereas the, the ratio has been studied at least in a one or a couple of studies so uh, so it's still even further on the sort of just theoretical uh, mm. side of the spectrum and then another issue that we as triathletes have is how you how, how the distribution of your workload uh, what, what it's composed of makes a really yes. significant <laughs> uh, impact on your injury risk obviously if 80% of your training load is from running, then you're going to have a massively different injury risk than if 80% is from swimming and you have the same total workload when you mix them all up into one one chart. So uh, yeah, there are a whole host of issues with that. 
do you have any are you still sort of in the discovery phase of how you're actually going to quantify workload or are you sort of uh, already closely deciding on what might be a, a good a good way of, of quantifying it uh, we we haven't made any because we almost keep coming back to just the, the traditional approach of of volume because they were runners training for either a marathon or half marathon and so using i guess almost going back to the staple metrics of you know, miles in that week um and that we we did recently do a study um in bowling it was actually it was related to cricket and bowling that i was able to be a part of which had a slightly it was a similar metric almost to the acute chronic workload but the mathematics were slightly different um and it was more of a, a, a similar actually i think what you say that that difference but um again workload is always just one piece of the puzzle so when people try and use it to predict um injury it's not surprising that maybe the prediction accuracy is quite low so when we did some just initial analysis i think uh, we tried the acute chronic workload ratio and it wasn't really providing us with any link to the the non-time loss injury pain that people were feeling uh, but actually that might be the answer but because of the the issues with the acute chronic workload ratio we we kind of ditched it and we do need to get back to it <laughs> yeah all right uh, is there anything else that uh, we that you want to mention uh, on the injury side of things that yeah that we have missed haven't talked about yet I guess uh, from my perspective, I would say in terms of considering maybe changing your gait, I would urge more towards doing it for rehabilitation than prevention. I don't think we really know enough from a prevention perspective to be able to recommend that. And I certainly don't think there's a one-size-fits-all perfect running form. So prevention kind of suggests that oh maybe you should all switch to this gate because that will prevent your injuries and we just don't know that so i if you were going to consider changing your gate i would almost it's it's a reactive rehabilitation tool rather than a kind of proactive prevention all right yeah um yeah i think that's that's all the things that uh, i want to discuss just some to, to summarize some of the things so that what you said there in terms of like gate uh, changing your gate for rehabilitation purposes being the the primary reason to perhaps do that that's one of the takeaways i think then some other things that we mentioned on the injury side of things having like rotating through more than two pairs of shoes uh, would be another thing economy sort of like taking care of itself over time with with training would be another takeaway that i have and uh and the same thing with the gait, really, that when you're starting out, your gait will change as you as you go through the training process and, st- and start to basically optimize and give you something that is fairly close to, to your ideal eventually. And uh, yeah, those, those would be some of, some of the takeaways that, that I've had from this discussion. Was there anything else that you think was like one of the main highlights that uh, we should leave the listeners with? 
Yeah, I think that's a good summary. I would potentially just add that if you could undertake that kind of individual assessment if you just wanted to maybe fine tune your gait and that just for, you know you can do that through measuring your heart rate a number of different cadences um and then calculating your optimal uh, we, we've we've put some free software for that together and also a spreadsheet so um, if, if your listeners are interested in that then they can drop me a line and i can give them some information on that yeah i'll have the links to that in the show notes so then to wrap up, we have the rapid fire question. So these are just one sentence answers, uh, 15 seconds or so. And the first one is, what's your favorite book, blog or resource related to endurance sports or science or, or anything really related to our discussion? My favorite is uh, Biomechanics of Distance Running by uh, Pete Cavanaugh. It's, it's an old one though. <laughs> from the 90s all right and what's your favorite piece of gear or equipment for me i'm just happy with my ipod uh, I, I don't run with any metrics and finally what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success uh, i always thought back to uh, it's nice to be important but it's more important to be nice so actually oh, that's a good one just treating others as, as you want to be treated, and that—that's—that's that's, that for me is is far more important than striving to have a big ego or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, especially in uh, like the times we're in right now, I think being nice is more important than ever mm -hmm. uh, with everything going on in the world. Uh, all right. Thank you. And uh, one final question. Are you active on Twitter or any of the other social medias? Where can listeners keep up with the work that you're doing if they, if they would be interested in, in following you? Yes, I'm on uh, Twitter. So it's Izzy Moore PhD. It's my Twitter handle. All right. Perfect. Thank you so much, Izzy, for coming on the show. It was uh, great talking to you and have a nice rest of your day. Yeah, thanks for the invite. It's been really great to, to chat all things running and also have a good day. I hope that you enjoyed that interview with uh, Dr. Izzy Moore. You can find the show notes as usual on scientifictriathlon.com and I will link in the show notes as well as in the episode description on your podcast app to a number of uh, different episodes that we've done in the past on all things running form, running economy, biomechanics, and uh, even some episodes that are slightly related, like the one I did with Walter uh, Hochhammer uh, about the Nike Vaporfly 4% shoes and the science of, of those shoes, which obviously have now been replaced by newer models of uh, Nike's uh, special uh, special economy boosting shoes but there will be tons of related links to past episodes i recommend that you check them out if you haven't already and of course i will link to uh, dr moore's profile and uh, that has uh, that page has a list of her publications so you can find all of the publications we were discussing today as well as many others on the cardiff metropolitan university through that link and also the group that she's uh, working with the human movement research group have their own website where they discuss their different projects and that's uh, actually a really good website so that will also be in the links 
On Thursday, there is another Q&A episode coming out as usual. And next Monday, I have an interview with Hugo van den Broek, who is an elite running coach from the Netherlands, but he is based in Kenya and working with uh, several elite Kenyan runners as well as uh, elite Indian runners, uh, interestingly enough. And we will discuss his run coaching philosophy and uh, then perhaps draw some uh, implications for triathlon run training as well. But uh, that's going to be a really interesting one and uh, continuing on the theme of running uh, for next week as well. So tune in for that. Uh, if you haven't already rated and reviewed this podcast, that helps a lot. It really goes a long way to making sure that new people find the podcast. We can keep growing the listenership and uh, keep sponsors coming back so that uh, the podcast can go on and on. And uh, that is what makes it sustainable uh, after all. And so do that if you haven't already. And if you're a longtime listener that uh, think that the podcast has uh, provided a lot of value for you. Also, a reminder that if you are looking for training plans or coaching services, uh, check out scientifictriathlon.com and we have uh, descriptions of all of those products and services there. So uh, definitely go and check that out if that's something that interests you. Finally, big thank you to Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and take their free online sweat test and get a personalized hydration strategy for your next race and get 15% off your order of electrolytes when you use the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses, and get 20% off your order with a promo code that you get on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.